Welcome to Matthew's World of Wine and Drink, an educational podcast dedicated to teaching you all about the wines of the world, the different grape varieties, the different regions, and the history and culture of wine. Continuing the series on Greek wine with these interviews with Dionysi Grivenitas, we look at the other black grape varieties of Greece, as well as some of the winemaking practices. So let's talk about another grape variety, uh, Mavro Daphne, which historically is used for fortified wine but now uh, being used for dry, still red wine. Uh, tell me about that grape variety. Yeah, Marlboro Daphne is a kind of medium acidity, medium tannin grape that has a wonderful herbal uh, and earthy quality to it. It's planted in the, in the northern Peloponnese and also on the island of Kefalonia, amongst other pockets and other places. But those are the, the two most readily found places. It was created as a, as a sweet and a sweet wine and got its PDO for that. But that was more of a byproduct of a moment in time and of production, not necessarily what the true historical context of Mavro Daphne may be or should be. It's a longer discussion. We could probably spend a whole episode on that, but Certainly, there are four fortified Mavrodaphnes, and you can get versions of that. And I think that they're they're worthy. But I think where the varietal really hits its stride is a, as a dry red wine. I'll go back to Barbarusis, who I was talking about about his Nemea. <laughs> I don't represent this winery, and I'm plugging them all the time. I think he was the first to create a dry Mavrodaphne, and shortly thereafter, uh, Sklavos uh, in Kefalonia, who I do represent, started making his rather famous or yon bottling. Um, you can't write Mavrodaphne on the label, so you've got to give it another name. In the case of Sklavos, it's or yon. It's a kind of proprietorial name of a wine because the Appalachian law restricts it only to the use of sweet wines and not dry wines. So I have that bottle with me and it's absolutely delicious. What does Orgion mean? I think it means uh, like master of ceremonies or something like that, uh, you know, MC of the party. It's ancient Greek. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, there's an incredible like bay leaf quality to the to these wines. I think that's the, the aromatic characteristic that is most readily present and define really marks the wine and defines the wine. And then other herbal notes and you know, wet forest floor kind of stuff. Uh, underneath that it's kind of uh, makes these sort of like fecund wines for me and uh, if you if you're a fan of terroir driven wines I think uh, Marvel Daphne is, is a great varietal and yeah this wine by Sklavos um, they're a pretty natural wine producer and there's kind of a nice funk to it which I like is natural wine or biodynamics or organics a big thing in Greece or well unfortunately I think now they are now it is but I think unfortunately that's a kind of movement towards uh, marketing uh, rather than you know anything more uh, from the core of, of of what would make you be a natural winemaker the first natural winemaker in Greece I don't think ever set out to be a natural winemaker well I'm I'm talking about production level natural wine here um, every, it could be argued that a hundred years ago everyone was making natural wine in Greece because it was all 
you know, in their backyard and cloudy and fizzy and all that stuff. But Yanni Economo, who uh, learned how to make wine in Piemonte and worked in, you know, for Scavino and uh, Altari and a bunch of different producers in, in Barolo and worked also in Germany and in France. Uh, he moved back to Crete, the appellation of Citia, and started making what he just expressed as just nat- uh, traditional wines. But like the concept of natural wine has morphed and grown, right? So like, I don't know when the, say the gang of four in, in Beaujolais was uh, making wine under this new, more holistic prescription that the concept had anything to do with uh, what we know to be natural wine today because it's been, it's morphed, it's gone through different stages. And so um, I think, you know, Paolo Bay is another great example for that um, in Umbria. Like, you know, he set out to make traditional wines without additives and stuff like that, but without the kind of add-on effect of what we consider natural wine now. So Economo was doing that in 93, which doesn't put him too far out from where, you know, I think it started no earlier than the mid 80s in Italy and no earlier than the late 70s in France. But he'll confess that, you know, he was just looking to, to make terroir driven wines. I think the next step happened around 2001, 2002, when a group of winemakers decided that who were who had already been working organically, but um, decided to work uh, in a more non-interventionist way. And that includes Sklavos, it includes Tatsis in the Appalachian of Mumenisa, who I also represent, and it includes uh, Yorgas, who I don't represent in the Attic area near Athens. And so I think that those three guys were the first, well, maybe the second stage, but maybe the first stage that had a sort of nod to, we understand what's going on in the world of natural wines, and maybe we want to be part of it. Of course, it was anathema to Greece at that point. I mean, if you told someone in Greece in 2000 that you were even working organically, they were going to look at you, you know, askance, like give you the side eye. So they were really, really on the cutting edge back in 2000. And, you know, now at this point, I feel like there's a lot of conventional winemakers that are producing natural labels and it's kind of gotten into that realm and... I don't know that that stuff is particularly useful. I've even gotten away from calling wines natural wines. I just tend to call them low intervention, you know, wines or conventional wines. And if they happen to be organic, then they're organic. If they happen to be biodynamic, they're biodynamic. You know, I was talking with Stereostatsis, again, one of the one of the foundational uh, wineries for low intervention wines. And he only started really talking about his winery being low intervention, I think, in 2007 when they outfitted a new winery and moved into it because you know he had never no commercial yeasts had ever been used in that winery so he wouldn't call his wines natural even though he was working naturally in say o2 or o3 because you know there was natural there was uh, yeast populations in the winery that were uh, that were brought in that were commercial yeasts and so you can get you can get pretty serious about that and uh, I don't see how you can with a straight face, work conventionally in a, in a, in a larger winery or a mid-sized winery with all the accoutrement with your, you know, reverse osmosis machine and, and your new pneumatic press and all this stuff. And then turn around and say, well, this is our natural 
bottling of whatever. I think it's a bit disingenuous, but unfortunately the market is going in that direction. And there's one other black grape variety I want to talk about, which is quite obscure, uh, Limnio, because I've tried a couple of wines. I think you import one of them and they're absolutely fantastic. And this is a great variety, which is kind of rediscovered, what, 20 years ago or so. I think you're referring to Limnona, Limnona, because there's another varietal called Limnon, which is one of the oldest varieties known to really to man as far as winemaking varieties. And it's, I mean, it's in literature going back to antiquity. So one has just been kind of rediscovered and the other one has never left production and has a a long arc to it. So, and and they share the same kind of root uh, word, uh, Limnon, Limnona. Limnona, which uh, was, is indigenous to uh, Thessaly, to the the central part of uh, Greece, which has clay-based soils was, was, was pretty devastated by Phylloxera when it made it to Greece and fell out of use. And Christos Zafirakis, who we talked about earlier with respect to his Malaguzia, is responsible for resuscitating it about 20 years ago, taking um, some clippings from nursery and planting an experimental uh, vineyard. And then through that experimental vineyard, propagating clones of Limnona that he thinks have more merit than others. Now, of course, there's another seven or eight wineries that are using Limnona because of his success. And, and that's great. That's part of the it's part of the story of any of any place in the world, really, um, that deals with with uh, winemaking. And uh, but he, he is the he is credited with resuscitating it. And it, it gives despite the fact that it's in the hottest part of Greece in Thessaly that I mentioned earlier, it has a great balance uh, and acidity. These are unirrigated vineyards that he uses. But that can only happen because a varietal has has adapted, you know, to the the heat stress of a particular area and to the climate of a particular area over eons. Really, you can't really plant. I don't know that you could plant Syrah or Cabernet Sauvignon there and not get like just an utterly. Well, I don't know. Let's think about it. Syrah is in a, in a hot area in the, the northern Rhone, but typically it's planted on granitic soils. It's not planted on clay. Heavy clay, by the way. So yeah, Syrah would probably do rather poorly there as well between the heat and the and the, the different type of soil type. So Limnona is a wonderful case of of a indigenous varietal that gives medium bodied wines with nice acidity, beautiful tannins, silky tannins, and you would never guess that it's harvested in a place that regularly hits 105 degrees in August, without very much of a diurnal shift because it's about it's at sea level. Yeah, I just think it's an interesting example of um, a Greek indigenous variety kind of being worked with, being rediscovered, and how I think Greece should be selling itself, should be marketing itself as having all these indigenous varieties, which distinguishes it from the rest of Europe and the rest of the world. Over 300, over 300, and they're just starting to scratch the surface of, of what's possible. There's new blood in the system, new young winemakers coming up in their 20s, They've been affected by what's been going on in the rest of the world. Um, they travel and do stages and, you know, other countries and France and Italy and, and further afield and bring back with them new ideas, uh, whether it's natural winemaking or biodynamics or even if it's conventional, but they have a certain vision for what it is that they want to do. And uh, so you're, you're marrying that sort of energy to 
an incredibly varied terroir in Greece of different elevations, different soil types, limestone, schist, volcanic, loam, you name it, it's there, to 300 indigenous varietals. So it's just like, stand back, you know, there's an explosion going on there. Uh, it's great to see, it's great to be a part of. And, and there aren't too many places in the world that can boast this. I mean, Italy has certainly has an incredibly long winemaking tradition and they have an incredible uh, list of, of indigenous varietals and, it, and it's happening there and that's, that's great too. But outside of the Mediterranean basin and the Caucasus, I mean, it's not like you're going to get this experience from New Zealand or, um, you know, the Southern Hemisphere. There are a handful of countries, less than a handful of countries, where you've, you, you have varietals that have been developing for thousands of years, hand-in-hand uh, hand with, their, with their climate and with the terroir, and are waiting there to be discovered. It's, it's pretty fascinating and exciting. Yeah, it definitely sounds like Greece is in an exciting uh, position right now and definitely worth exploring. And just to give an example of how Greece has become more important internationally in terms of winemaking, I'm sure you're familiar with this, but Peter Barry of Jim Barry in Australia was visiting Santorini about 15 years ago, tasted the wines and fell in love with Assyrtiko. And so he had it imported into Australia, quarantined for three years and then planted it in Clare Valley and is now producing Assyrtiko. Um, in that probably quite a similar climate and that wine is fantastic and I think that could be the future of Greek wine as actually growers around the world start experimenting with Greek varieties especially as the climates warm up. I haven't had the opportunity to taste that wine though I've certainly heard it mentioned for years now so um, next time I'm in San Francisco if you happen to have an, a, a bottle with you uh, <laughs> let's let's share it together because I'm I'm very interested to see what what what's uh what's become of it. I was talking with a, with a winemaker um, in California, Northern California, uh, Root Down. So he's like really interested in high elevation red varietals. So he was talking about taking a trip to like Savoie and to um, Valdosta and Trentino and bringing back some like, uh, you know, suitcase clippings, you know, the, the good old illegal stuff. I won't say it happened and get him in trouble. I'm just saying this was a theoretical discussion we were having. And I was saying, oh, hell, man. I mean, if that's what you want, you got to come to me with to, to Greece because, I mean, there are varietals like uh, Vlachico, red varietals like Vlachico, Liatico, Nigritico, like all these different things that, you know, are at six, seven, eight hundred thousand meters in elevation and would just absolutely blow your mind with the, the the fruit and the aromatic profile that they give and the high acidities and the just the raciness of the wines and uh and greece just isn't known for that because you think of it as this this kind of island country and you know white wines but there's a, a great repository of of those kind of high altitude red grapes there definitely i can imagine those working in sierra foothills or somewhere similar uh, to that so thank you, Dionisi, uh, for this overview on the, some of the red wines of Greece and some natural winemaking practices. In the final episode, we'll have a brief defence of Retsina. So thank you for listening. This is Matthew, and this has been Matthew's World of Wine and Drink.